today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. There's a, an interesting piece uh, in the Toronto Star the other day uh, from Linda McQuaig, of course, the financial writer, and uh, it, it had to do with a couple of different things going on with the Bank of Canada, but one of them was about a promise that the, the Prime Minister had made during the election about setting up a huge uh, fund through the bank for cities, municipalities, to, to be able to tap into for huge infrastructure projects, uh, which, as we've seen in the past, is, is one of the better ways, I guess, to try to climb out of a recession, puts people to work, gets uh, much-needed work done on infrastructure, etc., but there was a bit of a hit to this, and there was a, a corollary to this that a lot of people weren't expecting. So I want to talk about that and, and a bunch of other things. And to that end, I'm so pleased to welcome back to the program Moshe Landau, who is the senior economist and lecturer at Concordia University. And Moshe, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us again today. Any time. The, uh, the topic I want to get into here is, well, I guess for lack of a better term, it's private-public partnerships, P3s. And we've heard a whole lot about these, I guess, over the last number of years. Uh, and they were sold, I guess, initially, Moshe, as an idea of, well, this is going to take the burden off of municipal taxes. And, uh, you know, you're going to bring the private sector into this, and they're going to put some money into this, and they're going to take charge of this, and it's going to be a relief to the taxpayers. Uh, and it seems as if what the Prime Minister has done uh, when he set up the, uh, the Canada Infrastructure your bank. Uh, that seems to be the bedrock of the bank. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, P3s are always a bit of a mess. The The theory of them is really sound, right? So yeah. governments can borrow at a cheaper rate than private business. And private business is motivated by profit in a way that government is not. So if you can provide businesses with money raised by the government at a low interest rate and then turn loose businesses that are all about trying to make profits, this should be much cheaper than having a government try and build bridges. After all, governments are not in the business of building bridges, right? They're, they're civil mm-hmm. servants that don't know anything about that stuff. The problem, of course, is always in the details and that once you start getting with bureaucracy and lack of transparency and once you start maybe tilting the the playing field in a way that it's not necessarily an open competition for government contracts, then you get the reports like you saw in the Star that say, you know, things don't quite work out the way the theory should. And, and it inevitably comes in more expensive than it should have. But it's important that the article did not mention that it's less expensive than if the government had done it entirely itself. And, and the, 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 I'm going to get into that in a second because... Uh, in McQuaig's article, she basically says that's not the case, and she cites uh, some reports from the Auditor General here in Ontario uh, that said that uh, involving the private sector drives up costs of infrastructure. In the 2014 investigation of 74 projects, the AG found the province's decision to partner with the private sector uh, cost Ontarians an extra $8 billion. So is this in the eye of the beholder, Boshi? It, it, it's partly in the eye of the beholder, but it's also careful to... Whenever the AG writes these reports, they're they're going to be very... Um, let's say um, their language is going to be used in a way that it's not quite clear what they're saying. So when they said that it's $8 billion more, what they didn't say was that it's $8 billion more than what it should have cost, right? Cost overruns and anticipated delays and things like that. But what Mm -hmm. they don't say is what's the hypothetical of what would it have cost if the government had tried to do it itself? And in that case, it might have come in $20 billion more. So $8 billion over cost is better than $20 billion over cost. So in that sense, it is in the eye of the beholder that it's what are you comparing it to? So um, inevitably, there's always cost overruns in these P3s. And that's because once you secure a contract from the government, you can't really go back to the government and uh, 
say to them, hey, we're going over cost, and expect that the government's going to say, well, forget it, right? <laughs> At that point, the government's kind of on the hook, and they yeah. have to pay whatever because they need the project done. And let's face it, there's an attitude, I guess, in, in some people's minds anyway, the government is just a, an ATM. You know, if you need an extra $10 million, just go ask them. I mean, they can, they've got the money. You know, it's, it, it's, it's not like you have to go to the bank. And as you say, they, if they have to borrow it, they get it at a cheaper cost. Uh, and, and that has happened. I mean, we've all, I think, as you and I are talking, I'm sure people are conjuring up images in their heads of projects like that in their municipality that have gone way over budget. Uh, and, and, you know, the government just has to pony up the money for that. That's a big concern that we always have with these projects. I, I was on a city council in Hamilton back around, well, the turn of the, of the decade, the turn of the century, I guess, for that matter. And, and that's just when these things really became in vogue, these P3s. And, and the selling point there was, look at this project here is going to cost you $100 million. Uh, but you know what, city of Hamilton, you don't have to pay a hundred million. You're going to bring a private sector partner into there. They're going to pay a portion of it. You might get a little bit of money. It's only going to cost twenty million dollars instead of the hundred million. And that boy, that that caught a lot of people's attention. Is is it that black and white, or is are we looking at some shades of gray here? No, it's definitely shades of gray. So if someone's if someone's selling you a hundred million dollar project at a cost of twenty million, then you immediately know something's not right here. Um, <laughs> the, the, remember, even though the government can borrow at a cheaper rate, right? You know that when city council or provincial government or federal government um, tries to do the project themselves, right, it's not that they actually have like a department of public works, right? There's there's not a bunch of people that are getting government pay to go build that bridge. They, they mm-hmm. still have to find a, a company that's in the bridge building exercise to go out and do it on the government's behalf. So it, it's it's a little bit of a misnomer even to think that the the public sector is actually doing the construction or doing the water purification projects themselves. It's not. It's, it's a, a company that's essentially doing it. And so, it, it, again, it, it, it's a little bit misleading, and that's why these stories make such great headlines, because inevitably it, it, it doesn't work out. Um, there's that breakdown in when you drop the contract, you can't account for every eventuality. And so when those eventualities rise then you end up getting bogged down in whose responsibility is it? Is it the private sector's responsibility to eat those costs and eat into their profit? Or is it the public sector's responsibility to stump up more cash? Usually the public sector is going to come off looking worse for an incomplete project than a private company. So they usually blink first and put up the cash. And it turns into oftentimes a legal quagmire, doesn't it? I mean, the example that I'm thinking of right now is uh, Tim Horton Field, where the Tiger Cats play in Hamilton. Uh, that was part of the Commonwealth bid, but it was uh, again, it was a, a partnership, a PP3, a P3 thing, uh, and it took years to resolve that. I mean, you're right; there were cost overruns. It was a year and a half late, I think, in, in being completed. Uh, who's in fought? You know, your this is your responsibility. This is your responsibility. I think it was just a couple of months ago they finally got the, this thing all settled out. It, it can really get messy, can't it? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, here in Montreal, I just need to look, uh, you know, out my window and a little off into the distance there, and you can see the arm of the Olympic Stadium. Ah, yes. That's, that's a testament to um, <laughs> how P3s can go radically wrong when uh, uh, you have cost overruns. And, you know, your example of Tim Horton Field there is, is a very common one within the, the field of sports itself, that the moment that you end up with public money going into arena and stadium financing, it's an instantaneous uh, guarantee that there's going to be these cost overruns exactly because of the public relations nightmare that comes from something so visible, right? Uh, a bridge takes a little bit longer than necessary. Drivers are annoyed because they have to find a different way to work. But when you want to go see your Thai cats play and you realize that there's still 
you know, construction materials hanging around, or they're going to have to play in some derelict field for one more season. That's going to cause a, a big PR problem, and, and that's why those cost overruns are, are so easily assured. Where's the, as you mentioned, in, in a partnership like this, though, Moshi, the city is there. They want this project done. Whether, as you say, whether it's a wastewater plant or a, whatever it might be, uh, the private company is a for-profit company. Are, are the profits built into the bid, into the, in the money right there? Or, uh, yeah. Is that captured? Because because the the argument against this, uh, you know, from people that were just dead set against this from a philosophical standpoint, is don't partner with for-profit people because that money that they're making as profit should be going back to the taxpayers. No, so it. It's unfortunately the way that it's it's a difference between the way accountants and economists see things. So the way that all of us are trained, even if we've never taken accounting classes, right, is that profit is what's left over uh, from your revenue after you cover your expenses. Mm-hmm. From an economic standpoint, we say you no know, profit is is part of the cost of doing business. That I, as the owner of the company, whether that's as a private owner or as a shareholder, I expect to be compensated for putting up my capital and taking on a risk. And so in the same way that uh, a worker expects to be paid for their time and effort, and the same way that a landlord expects to be paid for providing a, a workplace, um, a shareholder or a capitalist expects to be paid for their efforts too, and that's profit. And so the, the idea then that I'm motivated by profit is actually what gets things done. If, if I don't have a profit motive behind me, um, then what am I doing this for? Uh, a private company would never just take on something because of corporate social responsibility. They do it because there's money to be made here. And so when you incentivize them with profit, that's going to help them get it done on time or at whatever level you want. And so usually what they'll do is within their contract, they'll build in that that profit is no different than then building in a line item for here's the cost of our workers or here's the cost of our equipment, here's the cost of our uh, raw materials. So what's the advantage here? Because there's, there's two scenarios. Uh, one is, okay, the municipality, Montreal, Hamilton, London, whatever it is, uh, wants to build something, and they want to build a bridge, a couple of bridges. Why don't they just say, okay, we're going to do this. Let's Here's the budget for it. I go find you know, company ABC. We're hiring you to do this. Uh, what would be the motivation for company ABC to say, no, we want to end into a partnership instead of just a, a contractual thing to say, yeah, we'll build it, and here's the price? It's it's essentially a risk sharing exercise, right? Okay. And so that's that's the devil in the details, and that's why things get bogged down in courts, right? So, if a private company says, "Look, we want this contract, and we will assume a hundred percent of the risk," if the government uh, changes, which is certainly possible in a democracy, right? Um, then all of a sudden they're exposed to the risk of, well, what happens about honoring this contract, or what if the new government wants a different standard applied to that? water treatment plant or to the bridge or to whatever it is, again, you're heading for court. And in a for-profit firm where they don't have unlimited tax dollars available to them, they're going to say, what's in this for us? Like, well, why are we entering into this agreement, um, especially for infrastructure projects that are uh, very long? Beyond that, of course, there's the liability aspect. With 20 years' time, it turns out something goes wrong. Uh, what happens with that? Uh, a major case was 20 years ago with September 11th, uh, and it got bogged down in the courts as who was responsible for those buildings catching on fire the way they did. <laughs> was that mm-hmm. the the um, construction firm in the 1970s facing liability 25 years later for something they couldn't have foreseen? So they'll go to the government and say, look, we don't mind doing this for you, but we need to agree as to whose risk is what and what happens in these eventualities. This the idea and the concept and the announcement that the government made about, hey, we're going to have a, you know, a big pile of money here for infrastructure for municipalities, uh, that 
makes people perk up. That's great because they've been asking for that for years. Some, you know, a sustainable amount of funding for these things. Uh, but the, the the corollary here that it has to be a P3. In other words, you have to do a partnership here. Uh, caught a lot of people off guard. And the the, the the initial response I got from the government was, well, that's how these things work. But my now I'm in the McQuaig article in the Star. Apparently, the European banks don't do that at all. You want the money, you get the money. You don't need to have a partnership. Yeah, um, I mean, every funding model is is based on its own thing. I mean, the, the PTPs actually became very popular even in the 1970s. They were being discussed as a uh, an attractive way to try and kind of share out that risk. It, it's uh, a matter of what what are those eventualities. And if you remember, the, the British legal system that we have here in Canada is different than a lot of continental Europe, which works under a different legal system. So, um, you know, oversimplifying kind of the legalities um, our, our system is based on like this case law sort of idea. So if I take you to court and say, hey, you didn't live up to your end of the contract, the way that we kind of work within the legal system is I say, here's a similar case that applies to the one that we're litigating. Uh, this was the decision in that case. This is the decision that applies here. In a more continental European sort of system, what they would do is they would lay out like every eventuality in the contract that they could think of. And then if those eventualities happen, they'd say, well, it's there in the law. The difficulty of that is that those contracts become very, very cumbersome and very, very time-consuming. And so, yeah, fine, they, they just give the money to the companies, but they'll also lay out in the contract so many more details than would exist in, say, a Canadian contract that it produces a slightly different sort of uh, cost uh, in terms of the upfront cost versus the cost later on. Uh, very quickly, because I want to give the other side of the coin here, and you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, governments can can borrow money uh, at a cheaper rate usually than, than corporations can, and that's the. But to a point, uh, there's as we've talked about in the past, Marcia, there's a lot of money gone out the door from the federal government in the last year, and uh, with the promises that they're making about the recovery plan right now, and this infrastructure project being one of them, there's a lot more money going out the door. At some point, uh, these rating agencies look at this and say, "Hey, guys, you're you're pretty close to the line here. Is there a risk?" of that happening here in Canada, that they may say to the federal government, hey, just chill out a little bit? Yeah, and, and you're seeing that right now where, you know, uh, Parliament's getting a little bit uh, um, antsy about the government brushing up against the $1.8 trillion debt limit, right? And mm-hmm. so are you going to adjust that? Are you going to increase it? Um, part of the, the issue that the ratings agencies are going to look at is not just how much debt do you have, but what was that debt used to finance, right? So uh, I think you and I have discussed before that if I want to go borrow money from a bank to finance a blowout trip to Vegas, that's a very different debt that I'm taking on than if I go to the bank and say I want to borrow money to build a home, right? It's the same level of debt to the bank, uh, but one is something that will provide 25, 30 years of benefit, one will provide 25, 30 hours of benefit. So Part of that is going to be analyzed by the, the ratings agencies. Unfortunately, much of the money that's been spent in the last year is not of a sustainable nature. It's merely to help people get from one month to the next, and that doesn't leave behind any residual effect. So if the government's spending money on infrastructure, uh, they can actually afford to spend more than they would be able to if they're just continuing to provide those $2,000 payments to everybody. 
And I, I guess their rationalization would be, well, yeah, but this is going to be a, a hard asset that uh, that that you know is going to benefit for the long term. At least you know we have to wait and see what the projects are going to be. Uh, but we've seen that happen in the past, especially in the 0809 recession, you know, where Standard and Poor's and others would uh, uh, reevaluate some of the 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 bond rating, and and uh, and a lot of municipalities got whacked as a result of that. And I'm wondering if we're if this is an inevitable action that may happen in the next year or so because of what's going to be happening with the federal government. Inevitable, no, but it's certainly a possibility. Uh, the the risk beyond just you know bond rating agencies downgrade uh, government bonds that that doesn't just increase the cost of borrowing to the government, but think about all of the pension plans that have to have a certain yeah. amount of you know their portfolio with uh, AAA rating uh, assets, and all of a sudden if they have to start dumping bonds because they're no longer seen to be as safe as they once were, uh, that can create uh, a spiral effect that if you know, interest rates increase, bond prices go down, and now if I have to start dumping bonds, uh, that's going to push them down even further. And so the government has to be careful for sure, and they need to have some exit strategy. And this was something that I was cautioning during the first wave of the lockdown, that use that brief opening in the summer to start coming up with some plan for a second lockdown or a third lockdown. And it doesn't look like anybody, any level of government, has really done that effectively. And that's the danger then, is that everyone's just kind of walking around from one crisis to the next, uh, and it's going to take that maybe downgrading to make minds concentrate on well, what do we do now. Well, there you go again. I think governments have to have vision. I, I, <laughs> uh, they do just go from one crisis to another, don't they? That seems to be the way we've been governed here for the last little while, uh, centuries for that matter. Uh, always great to get your perspective on this, Moshi. Thanks so much for the time today. Uh, stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Very good. Looking forward to it. Take care. Moshe Lander, of course, senior economist and lecturer with uh, Concordia University in Montreal. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.